Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. The Children of the 80s are back with another review of one of our childhood favorites to see if it stands the test of time. I'm Patrick. I'm Chris. And I'm Scott. Welcome back, Scott. Hey, I'm happy to be back. It's been a while, but looking forward to doing another podcast with you. Uh, It's been like two years, but uh, who's counting? It only took us a year and a half. (laughs) We only took a year and a half break ourselves, so it's... It's understandable. And this week we're reviewing 1990s classic film Tremors with Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by the Perfection Nevada Chamber of Commerce. Are you looking for a safe, secluded community far away from the bright lights of the big city? Then come to Perfection. We are nestled in the center of a box canyon with rocky cliffs to the north, inspirational peaks to the east, and stirring mountains out west. Perfection is located just 30 miles from Bixby and has everything you'd want in clean, quiet living. You outdoor adventurers will love our off-road Jeep trail, and hunting buffs will be able to chase down critters that are found nowhere else on Earth. Our newly renovated market offers unmatched convenience that's perfect for small-town living. So kick up those heels and come check out what our tranquil town has to offer. We promise you nothing but good vibrations. <laughs> Say you heard this ad on Lunchtime Movie Review and receive a free six-month subscription to Val and Earl's Wildlife Management Service. Outdoor living means outdoor pests, and on those occasions when a hungry creature comes looking for food on your property, you'll need the best in animal control. Val and Earl have the highest success rate in town, and can discreetly remove unwanted wildlife as quietly as a fisherman casting his rod. Val and Earl's Wildlife Management Service, once you use them, you'll be hooked. All right, I've got the summary this time, and here's the summary for Tremors. Did you have to dust this one off, by the way? Yes, I did. (laughs) Val and Earl are two handymen who work in the town that time forgot, Perfection, Nevada a town that was ironically named by its founding fathers. The 14 residents are made up of -of out-of-work television actors, out-of-work country singers, out-of-work Asian actors, and Kevin Bacon, who is so obsessed with eliminating degrees of separation, he did this film. Val and Earl are always looking to get rich quick and are tiring of their hand-to-mouth existence of digging trenches, moving trash, and literally taking care of other people's shit. Pardon my French. Apparently... This was not the life that was promised them in the brochure. One afternoon, after taking a hot shit shower, pardon my French, they attempt to make their escape to Bixby, the nearest town. Along the way, they discover a man dead at the top of the electrical tower. Val and Earl take the dead geezer to the town doctor, who lives nowhere near the town. They about shit themselves, pardon my French, when the doctor announces that the man died of dehydration. After the slight delay, Val and Earl start off for Bixby again but once again are stopped when they discover old Fred and his flock of sheep brutally murdered. Instead of hightailing it out of there, 
the two bumbling retards head back to perfection, believing that a murderer is on the loose. Begging the question, what better way to avoid being killed than staying in the area where the serial killer is hunting? Meanwhile, our unseen subterranean killer offs the good doctor and his wife, and a couple of construction workers, effectively closing off perfection from the 20th century, literally as well as figuratively. The residents of Perfection soon find that the phones are dead and send Val and Earl off to Bixby again for the third time. When they can't get past the rock slide created during the death of the construction workers, Val and Earl return to Perfection along with a large snake-like creature wrapped around their axle. The residents of Perfection are as clever as the writers of this film and call the creatures Graboids. The next morning, Val and Earl leave on horseback to try to get help. Along the way, they discover the doctor's buried car and are attacked by a huge phallic creature with a mouth like a vagina, except with snake tongues, somewat like Courtney Love, but with a darker complexion. Thrown from <laughs> better their looking, <laughs> probably smells better too. Thrown from their horses, the handymen run for their lives from this worm-like reject from Dune. When they jump a concrete aqueduct, their pursuer rams into its concrete wall, killing itself. Rhonda, the visiting seismologist and the only character to have apparently graduated high school, comes across Val and Earl and informs them there are three more creatures in the area based on her seismic readings. As the trio attempt to get back to Rhonda's truck, they are attacked by Courtney Love again and are forced to find shelter on a cluster of boulders. Once there, they realize the creatures have extremely acute hearing and can sense the trio due to their vibrations on the rock. However, the graboids cannot tunnel through the rock. Eventually, they're able to get to Rhonda's truck and make it back to the perceived safety of perfection with its mobile homes and buildings without concrete foundations. However, Val, Earl, and Rhonda are followed back to perfection by the three remaining graboids. Val and Earl's truck is soon disabled, and Walter, the Chinese shop owner, is eaten. But the graboids are hungry again mere minutes later and come after the remaining citizens of perfection. Graboids love Chinese food. <laughs> Tastes like dog. <laughs> so, Graboids begin to pick apart the town, causing everyone to head to higher ground. While the citizens of Perfection attempt to get as far off the ground as possible, the Gummers, a couple of government-fearing Republican gun enthusiasts, return to their secluded home after unsuccessfully hunting the snake things. Bert and Reba contact the others via CB radio, but the noise of the couple's tumbler leads a Graboid to smash into their basement. The Gummers kill it with an elephant gun, but another of the monsters disables their vehicle, stranding the couple on their roof. Realizing that the town is being dug out from under them, Val and Earl grow a brain and realize that what they need to do is get the hell out of town. They formulate a plan to escape on a semi-trailer with flat tires pulled by a slow-moving bulldozer, which is apparently too heavy for the Graboids to move. Why they know this? Fuck if I know, pardon my French. They just presume that it's too heavy to move, although the Graboids have no problem tearing down the town. Val runs for the bulldozer and reaches it with the help of a distraction by the others. Once everyone is collected, they all set out for safety of a nearby mountain range. But the Graboids, unlike the citizens of Perfection, are quick learners, and they dig a trap in the bulldozer's path, wrecking it. The townsfolk use Bert's homemade explosives to drive the creatures away long enough to reach the safety of a boulder where Earl has another idea, tricking the Graboids into swallowing Bert's bombs. This works once, but on the second try, the last Graboid spits the explosive onto Bert's pile of bombs, sending everyone scattering. Val, Earl, and Rhonda are stranded yards from the boulder, 
with the Graboid blocking their path to safety. Val has one more bomb and one last idea. He lets the Graboid chase him to the edge of a cliff and stampedes it with the bomb, and then jumps out of the way, sending it through the cliff face to its death. The group returns to the town, and Earl pushes Val into approaching the clearly interested Rhonda romantically. Come on, she's the best-looking girl in town. And that is Tremors. You know, I now Wait, fully understand where Courtney Love got the name for her band Hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Tremors released on January 19th of 1990, the same day as the film Everybody Wins and Brain Dead, and same month as Internal Affairs, Ski Patrol, and Leatherface, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. It grossed at whopping $16.6 million at the box office. Was the 71st highest grossing film of that year, right behind Death Warrant, The Guardian, and White Palace, and right in front of Tales of the Dark Side, the movie, Men at Work, and I Love You to Death. So I love Men at Work to Death. That is a film that we should review someday. It is. So, All right. Who had seen Tremors before this podcast? I've seen it dozens of times. It's been kind of a favorite of mine for just the, the comedic value of it. But, Scott, you can't stop there. You, you have to tell us about the Tremors gift pack that you have. Oh, oh, that's the best part. Uh, when it came time to do the podcast, uh, I went dusted off my DVD shelf, and I, I pulled it out when I discovered that I did not only own Tremors, but I had the box set, which included all four Tremors movies. So if you didn't know, and I didn't, there are four of them, including uh, based on the box. Uh, at some point, the uh, the worms learn to fly. So uh, I, I just can't wait to dive into the entire franchise. I think somebody said we'll make a fourth one when worms fly, and that's what they came up with. <laughs> well, what I find most interesting is that you didn't know there were four films, although you own the Tremors gift pack. <laughs> I am not good with money. <laughs> What's really exciting, they have the uh, the movie posters on the back. And the first one, Kevin Bacon gets top billing. Then Fred Ward in, in Tremors 2. But the really neat thing, Michael Gross, uh, Alex B. Keaton's father himself, gets top billing in 3 and 4. So if there's any doubt on the quality and caliber of these films... I think you only need to look to a star to know they must be amazing. Well, it's good to know that with the star power of a Michael Gross in what would have been the probably the 18th or 19th season of Family Ties, uh, he can make sure that he can be the lead in the direct to, if I remember correctly, because I have seen them all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You've actually seen them? I've actually seen them. I don't own them. I did not I did not spend money on them. I think I got them off. I think they were on sci the Sci-Fi channel, if I remember, the three and four. Two was a direct-to-video, and I worked in the video store when it came out. Three and four, I think, came out while we're on the Sci-Fi channel. Well, I'm not sure which is worse, me owning them, having not known of their existence, or you actually taking the time to watch them. Cash outlay, I think, trumps me. Sorry. All I have <laughs> is a loss of time. You have a loss of respect because it sits on your shelf and have to explain it away. So <laughs> that with along with two copies of Dirty Dancing. But that's for another day. So we're not going to do that right now. <laughs> two copies? They just came out with the extended director's cut. I'm up to like three now. Oh, that's, you just keep pissing money away. That's all. 
unfortunately, that's not true. It's just my dream. One day they'll have the full director's cut where baby truly doesn't stand in the corner. All right, Chris. Now, had you seen Tremors before this podcast? Yeah, I had seen it before. It's been a it's been a very long time. I don't think I've really seen it since the nineties. Uh, there was parts of it that I didn't remember at all. But um, yeah, it's been a while, and I have not seen two, three, or four. But I am very curious to see Flying Worms. I will say that much. Yeah, I remember when this one came out. Uh, I was not working in the movie theater when it came out. I worked in the movie theater before it came out, and then I worked in the movie theater after it came out, but it was during the school year, so I wasn't working in that time frame. I remember seeing the previews, and I was there on opening night. I remember I was there with uh, Chris and I have a friend named Rich who took me there, I believe, for my birthday, and that's what we went and did is is uh, we both wanted swimmers, and it's still, to this day, I think, a really entertaining film. Not a great film, but it's a really entertaining film for what it is. It's a huge block of cheese. That's what it is. It is <laughs> that's the best description I can have for this film. It is, it's not meant to be good. It's meant to be silly, and it's absolutely silly. And they've got a good cast to be silly with. I mean, I think everybody did very good job with the parts they were given. Oh, oh good cast? Good cast? Yeah. I, <laughs> Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward... I think Michael Gross. I, uh, Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward, I think, are great. I absolutely think they're great. Everybody else, I think, is, yeah, they're forgettable. I mean, uh, the next obvious lead is Michael Gross. but mm-hmm. Him and Reba. <laughs> Reba. Long before her hit television series, this is the beginning of her acting career, if I remember correctly. And anytime you can get Victor Wong with his one eye in a film, I think that's comedy gold. Well, you know, they weren't lining up to make a sequel to Big Trouble in Little China, so... you know That's yeah. a damn shame, by the way. <laughs> but it's almost like he plays the character right out of it, just he moved to perfection, got out of that nasty Chinatown, so... Well, I don't think you can blame him for that one. Who knows what kind of monsters will be following you in San Francisco? Now, Scott, you're being quiet as we... I Chris says this perfectly cast. I say, eh, not so much, but what say you? You know, I, Fred Ward, in my opinion, pulls off the movie. I think uh, Kevin Bacon was very, very serviceable. But being able to bounce off Fred Ward, again, taking this movie for what it is, it's just fun. And I, I tell you, I really like the two lead characters. I would agree. I thought Michael Gross did a good job. But Reba, while she looked the part, I thought was awful. I don't think she gave a single line that was even kind of believable or keeping with the flow of the movie. And then everyone else was just kind of in it. The girl, I didn't recognize her. Who was the... Rhonda? Yeah, Rhonda. Who played Rhonda? Nobody. (laughs) I didn't recognize her. I don't know if she did anything else. I was kind of surprised. I didn't find her overly attractive to be kind of the female lead. And yeah, I couldn't help but noticing uh, she needed to shave her legs. I don't know what the deal with that was, but well, they, if they're doctoring them up, let's go ahead and give those babies a, a once-over with a razor before you film the close-up. Well, she doesn't benefit from the advances in high definition. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. On VHS, those legs look fine, but you know now they look like Tom Selleck's legs. Uh, Finn Carter, that's her name, by the way. Um, did, did she you do anything it? before or after? I was just looking that up, so... Uh, but before I talk about Finn Carter or get into her biography, uh, the little girl, did you guys recognize her? The little girl? Yeah. 
Ariana Richards? No. She's the little girl in Jurassic Park. So a couple of years later, she did much, much, much bigger. Much bigger animals chasing her. Yeah, it's true. So... Well, it, it, How many times did she go on the pogo stick in Jurassic Park? That's my question. Yeah, um, Finn Carter did a lot of television, looks like. She was in a movie called How I Got Into College, which I remember in 1989. Um, other than that, looks like a lot of TV, but not a very accomplished actress by any stretch of the imagination. So, you know, we talked about this as cheese, but this film's pulling from a lot of different films. I mean, obviously direct ripoff from Dune. Um, the sandworms in Dune, I mean, it's basically the same damn thing. When uh, Victor Wong gets eaten, it's almost like we're watching Jaws again with Quint getting eaten by the shark and kind of thrown around in the back of the boat. That, and since we just recently reviewed that for Movie House Memories, it was fresh in my mind. I went, wow, it's their homage to Jaws right there. So, I mean, they're obviously just blatantly ripping other films off. I liked how every time a person got pulled down, everybody just kind of watched a little bit. Well, it's pretty impressive. Story-wise, why the characters do what they do doesn't seem to make any sense. You know, Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon, how many times do they have to start on a trip to Bixby before they actually just leave? You know, oh, I'm sorry, we found a body. We should go back and tell everybody. And they drive back and tell everyone instead of just going on their way. And finding the doctor's car buried in the ground, you know, okay, that's enough for me. Let's go. And the only real thing that got him to go was being covered in shit. Pardon my French. (laughs) Well, that's at the beginning of the film. That's before they even were, they thought there was a killer running around. So, yeah, you know, I, I was uh, watching it this evening and kind of dealing with the kid when they could take off on horseback. Why did they go in on horses? Wasn't that before their truck had been ruined? Oh, no, the, the truck couldn't get around the uh, landslide. That's oh, why they okay, went, that's that, what it was. That's why. Although, why wouldn't your horses ride down the road? Why were you cutting across, you know, if you're just going to go over the top of the landslide or whatever? Or why didn't they just take the truck to the old Jeep trail? I don't know why they didn't do half the damn things that they did. So it just didn't really make any a lot of sense to me. But still, was fun. It was a fun film. Mm, yeah. Again, you, I think if you appreciate it for what it is, and I, you know, I like the fact that it doesn't really pretend to be anything else. It's like the characters are in on the joke while you're watching the movie, and I, I think that's a lot of fun. Now, there was an original ending to this film that was very different, that Val and Earl actually head out to Bixby, and Val doesn't hook up with Rhonda, but it's implied. The two of them are looking for their lighter and realize that Rhonda still has it, so they turn around and head back. And that was shot for an audience, and it didn't test very well. Does anybody really give a shit about Rhonda and Kevin Bacon's romance? I mean, there's no reason other than to give his character some depth that he's supposed to change. But does that have any importance to you at all in this film? I think it justifies them casting a not-so-pretty girl because he only went for the hot women with long legs, and here he found him a woman with brains and hairy legs. So I think he did grow tremendously. <laughs> As did her hair. Well, I'm sure Finn Carter really appreciates the fact that you just called her a not pretty girl. (laughs) Maybe she was early 90s hot. No, she wasn't early 90s hot. She wasn't late 80s hot. She wasn't mid 80s hot. Yeah. She might have been early 70s hot, I guess, maybe. 
But that, that's that, when a lot of hair was acceptable. That, that's true back in those days. So, you know, one thing I liked about her character or how it played into the whole movie is in so many of these, there's the clear female love interest and it's forced throughout the entire movie. It seemed to me that it was kind of incidental, like when it's over, like, hey, maybe ask her out. But so many of these movies that take themselves too seriously, by the end, they have to be together. It has to be true romance and passion. And this was just somewhat lighthearted and, and not really forced like so many other movies. Mm-hmm. I think that by doing that, it didn't detract from the film, yep. if you can call this a film. No, it's a film, but <laughs> going that far. But why the hell would she have any interest in him? I mean, short of uh, she can't get a date at all, and he's the only thing showing interest is, I mean, he literally cleans up shit for his occupation <laughs> just in the middle middle of nowhere, which translates to when he moves to Bixby that he can't even clean up shit. So, it, Well, think about it. She's out in the middle of nowhere. Michael Gross is married. Her only other options are one-eyed Chinaman or Fred Ward. So I don't know if he had one eye. <laughs> he had two eyes. He just was squinty. Oh, okay. <laughs> In Japan, he was known as Rapai. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, at the beginning of this film, I actually thought that Val and Earl would go Brokeback Mountain on us a couple of times. The way they were talking at the beginning, it was almost like they were a little too buddy-buddy. That would be a more believable love story than, I think, between Kevin Bacon and Rhonda. There was a little sparkle in Fred's eyes, so. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I hate to be the one to point this out, but they seemed a lot more broken up over all the dead sheep than they did the dead people. <laughs> that's that's true. <laughs> there goes their Friday night. I mean, that caused them to completely stop on their way to Bixby to go, what happened to the sheep? My God. You know, one of the things that I did notice was that considering this movie was made 1989 and released in 1990, I thought that the Graboids looked pretty decent. I've seen 80s movies where you could just tell that was animatronics, but they didn't look too bad for this. I think they did a very good job not showing them and showing them at the right times. You did bring out a good point that most of the special effects are actual physical effects that like the graboid coming out of the, the ground or Courtney Love, as I like to refer to it as coming out of the ground is actually coming out of the ground. It's not an actual special effect. There's only like one or two special effects like that. I think when Courtney takes down the horses out in the middle of the desert and comes up for the first time and we see the snakes come out of its mouth, that's actually a special effect. But most of the other time, it's actually them working the scenes. Yeah, I think they did it very well. And the part where the car went underground, too, you know, that was, I mean, I was still laughing, but I I thought that was extremely well done, too. Well, the car going underground wasn't so bad. That special effect of showing the lights in the sky, that looked looked pretty cheesy. That was cheesy. (laughs) That was bad. That's what makes this film so great. They do some things very good, and then they do some things very bad, and it all kind of works. Yeah, but, I mean, it's... It, that's what they intended to do. It's uh, you know at the end of the day they're not make they're not making Citizen Kane. Okay, they're not making The Godfather here. You know they're not even making Dune for that big special effects bonanza. It is just it's just supposed to be a you know knee slapper comedy horror. And, and I think it pulls it off well because the comedy still works and the you know the, the scariness the horror factor still works. Ultimately, you can't see the bad guys. You don't know where they're at. You know, besides that, there was times when I kind of felt that this had a Pee-wee's Big Adventure sort of feel to it, where they um, went to kind of that absurdity, kind of like the lights going out into the sky. 
um, that that's kind of the feel that they really, really wanted. They could have done a better special effect than that, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, but I think they just didn't want to. When I was watching the movie tonight, right before we started this podcast, I didn't even think about the special effects, which if you consider, you know, based on the statement you just made, this came out in 1990. That's actually pretty impressive that, you know, so many of these older movies, it's just like, oh, look how cheesy it used to be. I didn't think of that once. So I think you're right. It, it actually is pretty impressive what they were able to do. And again, I, I can't remember which one of you said it, but the idea of keeping the bad guy hidden, it, it does make it more suspenseful. And I would agree with that. It, it added a lot to the movie the way they did it. Yeah, it was very Hitchcockian. We're seeing what the killer can do, but not seeing the killer, you know, the Graboy itself for some time. And even when they finally do reveal it, it's pretty frightening. It's pretty big. You know, it's still cheesy where it came from. And that was another thing I actually liked about it is that, you know, we all kind of wonder, where does it come from? And they even kind of pontificate on that in the middle of the film about, you know, where does it come from? And Fred Ward says, God be from outer space or something like that. And they don't waste any time trying to explain it. It just happens. That's all it is. And I like that. It's just like, it's just a mystery. I think the later films actually go into explanation of that. But this film, just like, hey, it's not important to the story we want to tell. It's just a giant killer worm with snake tongues. Who directed this? Do you know off the top of your head, Patrick? I think it was Ron Underwood, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's Ron Underwood. I don't know if he went on to direct anything else, but I thought, as Oz is to say this for a movie like this, he did a really good job. That The scenes where you, you just see the dust kind of popping up and you can see the movement, again, takes the viewer in and, and enhances the suspense, which... Uh, you know, I, I think that's good direction. Even uh, while it's cheesy, but the the stakes or the uh, the fence post being knocked down again that that's a good way of illustrating you have this big monster without showing it, yet pulling the viewer in and making it that much more intense for him. This is Ron Underwood's first directing gig on a major film. Went on the next year to direct City Slickers. That's why was, his name sounded familiar to me. So, um, had a legitimate box office hit. Directed Heart and Souls, Speechless, Mighty Joe Young, and then unfortunately directed The Adventures of Pluto Nash in 2002. And he seems yes. to have, he seems to have suffered for some reason after that. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, stink of Pluto Nash. Uh, after that, he seems to direct a lot, a lot, a lot of television. <laughs> so he needs Courtney Love to come save him again. Yeah. Directed both Santa Baby 1 and Santa Baby 2. Yeah, that's that's about it. Yeah, he's uh, not... Uh, he, he, his highlights were in the early 90s there, but, you know, it's, he was he's not an unaccomplished director if he hadn't directed Pluto Nash, which maybe that was... Once again, he was trying for the cheese, and it just... That time, it just didn't come off effectively. Although, one could argue this is... It only made a little over $16 million. This was not a box office hit. It was not a huge hit. It became a cult film after the fact. I I was working in the video store when it came out on video, and this film always was popular. People would come back and re-rent this and re-rent it over and over again. All right. Does this film stand the test of time? I think I know where Scott and I stand, so we'll let Chris go first. Yeah, I think it does. I think because the Graboids 
hold up so well to this day that they don't take you out of the story just by their physical appearance. The humor, I think, in this is pretty timeless. You know, a bunch of goofball losers in the middle of nowhere. So I liked it the first time I saw it, even though it's been many, many years since I've seen it again. I still like it. And yeah, even with its little flaws, I think it stands the test of time. I agree. I've seen this movie, uh, I don't know, probably a dozen times, maybe more, uh, at least parts of it. When it's on TV, I'll always stop and watch it for a few minutes. It's there's a few movies that when you just need to put on something light that's going to make you laugh are always perfect. And this is one of those for me. It absolutely stands up. I watched it tonight. I'll probably watch it again next year and we'll continue to do so for the foreseeable future. I think it stands up and I think it's a good movie. Yes, of course, I think it stands the test of time. This is a film that I picked. It's a film I love watching. It's cheese. Don't expect much from it. You're not going to get much from it except for an hour and a half. And it's a fairly short movie. It's only like 96 minutes long. It does not take long to move through this film. And if it had been angry, it would have been too long. So I highly recommend giving this one another go if you've seen it before. And if you haven't seen it, then uh, invest the time. It's worth the watch. All right, that does it for this week's review of 1990s Tremors. Thanks again for joining us and listening into our little bi-weekly podcast. If you had a good time, uh, the fun doesn't have to stop here. You can follow us on Facebook at Lunchtime Movie Review or on Twitter at Lunchtime Movie. On either Facebook or Twitter, you can keep up on information about upcoming podcasts on Lunchtime Movie Review, as well as Movie House Memories and Male Bonding, and possibly any other podcasts that we decide to do in the future, because we just keep wanting to talk about films. Additionally, if you've enjoyed yourselves and you've downloaded us off iTunes, make sure to rate our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, if you have a chance, and write a short review of the podcast. Of course, we always like the reviews that are positive, but we appreciate any feedback that we can get from fans of the show. And make sure to check out Chris's book, Duty, Honor, Empire, A 25th Century Love Story, um, which is available for download and a written copy now, Chris? Yeah, all on Amazon. Um, Which you can go to through the link on the Lunchtime Movie Review website. And you can also follow Scott's reviews at the Eastern Arizona Courier. Scott, uh, where can they find you there? If you go to eacourier.com, it's a weekly review about movies that are hitting the theaters right now. It's under the article name of Movie Buff, written by Scotty Walker. So just go to EA Courier, do a search for Scotty Walker, and you can find my take on the most recent movies that uh, you'll find playing at your theater right now. Recent movies? Who would want to talk about those? I know. No, come on. Movies from 30 years ago. That's where it's at. That's what I'm saying. And that does it for this episode of Lunchtime Movie Review. Until next time, I'm Patrick. I'm Chris, and I'm getting off this rock. (laughs) And I'm Scott. You guys have a good time. And uh, we got to get out of here right now, and you guys are invited.
This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for lunchtime movie review, Fireworks, is provided courtesy of Alexander Nakaranda at serpentsoundstudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the MHN Podcast Network, Lunchtime Movie Review, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. Thank you.